everyone, and welcome to the Grain by Training podcast for Grain Week 32. I'm Greg Northey from Pulse Canada. I'm joined by Milt Proyer of QJAC Consulting, who manages the Ag Transport Coalition, a consortium of agriculture groups that produce data and reports on rail service and performance. How are you doing today, Milt? Not too bad, Greg. Yourself? Well, not too bad, I guess. Uh, so we uh, just published the week 32 performance report for ATC. I think what we'll do, Milt, is we'll touch on it briefly, and then we'll get to the issue that is top of mind at the moment, which is the labor disruption on CP. Uh, week 32 performance looked pretty good. Some some improvements uh, for both rail- railways. Uh, what did you see? Yeah, I, I think CN, uh, you could characterize as uh, relatively steady, a little bit down from the prior week, but nonetheless, the last three weeks um, have been the best performance CN's put on the table for, you know, since November, really. Big jump for CP, which was nice to see um, after laboring somewhat for the last couple of months. Still inconsistent across, you know, individual corridors, uh, which has been commonplace, if you will, week in and week out for the better part of this year. The West Coast has always played a, a bigger role, which it usually does. Um, Thunder Bay is starting to have an impact because traffic is ramping up there as, uh, you know, the Seaway is probably set to open in the next few weeks. And both railways did well there this week, so that helped them both at the top line. Um, and interestingly enough, this good performance was uh, on higher demand. You know, um, we've had some really low demand this year, as we know. And week 31 was, as we had described in our podcast last week, historically low. Um, so it jumped quite a bit this year. Demand was just about 4,000 cars uh, for both railways combined, which doesn't sound like a big number. And when you look at this year, it's not. Um, and when we look at this year a year ago or this week a year ago, it's less than half because last year demand was 9,000 cars. So all that being said, you know, we're not going to throw away the good performance because we've been looking for it for a while. So that's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing um, to see that those numbers start to to start to come up and be fairly steady again, very, very low demand. It's pretty incredible. Provincially uh, anything catch your eye or fairly consistent across the board? Yeah. Pretty, pretty good, really. Uh, pretty much followed what we saw at the at the top line. There's really only one notable exception, and that was CN in Manitoba, where they were, you know, disastrously poor, only supplying one percent of cars. That was on very limited traffic. Uh, granted, you know, I think it was only a hundred or a little over a hundred orders, so not much. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, when you measure it this way, the performance was pretty poor. Everything else for both railways pretty consistent with the top line, either holding steady from week 31 or improving a little bit, which is a a good sign of balanced performance. All right. Well, just when we start to see performance begin to improve, uh, now we get hit with uh, labor disruption. So this was something we talked about last week and the week before, and, you know, there's been this fear that this was coming. And as of, well, essentially one minute after midnight on Saturday or Sunday morning, uh, it happened. So still some, some debate between CP and the, the Teamsters around whether they were locked out or whether they, they uh, left the job. Uh, but either way, the end result is the same. We've got a labor disruption. Um, I guess before we get into you know, what it means now, 
you know, CP was, was talking about an orderly wind down ahead of this. What would that mean for, for Royal when they're, when they're doing something like that milt as far as, uh, and, and why would they be doing the wind down? Well, there's a, a couple of things. Um, and we touched on this a little bit last week in, in the podcast, first and foremost, it's a safety consideration. I mean, you know, CP rail probably in a normal uh, year is out there running three, four or 500 trains a day across their network. If you look at it from coast to coast. Um, so they, if, if operations are going to cease in a case like this because of a work stoppage, however, it came to pass, um, the risk they run is impacting, uh, their network, um, when they want to actually resume operations. So what they would be looking to do is ensure that no trains are stranded on their first and foremost, their main lines, you know, secondary and branch lines would be uh, less critical, but uh, their preference still would be to have cars parked either in terminals, uh, whether that be at origin or at destination or en route or sitting on customer sightings. So what that does is it keeps their their main lines, if you will, uh, clear, um, which gets you to the second key consideration in doing this prior to a disruption. And that is the ability to start up efficiently uh, once the disruption is over. So as they plan their shutdown plan, there's a couple of things that they're looking at. First and foremost, obviously, is what traffic do we have online? And we need to deal with that. So they start by uh, stopping, if you will, new traffic coming on. And CP did that by issuing an embargo on all traffic to and from Canada. Um, The second thing they do is they deal with the traffic that they've got that's moving. So where can they put it and get it to where it needs to be inside the window they have, which in this case was 72 hours. And where is it best put given how they want to start up when the disruption is over based on what they perceive the priorities will be um, on the different types of traffic in the different corridors when they do start up. So, you know, they know they're going to have a problem in the Vancouver corridor for multiple commodities, intermodal being probably front and center, uh, grain, all other bulk commodities. So, when you get ready to go again, whether that's in three days, four days, or 10 days, how do you want to begin to move those trains to the terminals that need them to try and best meet the priorities of those customers and do that safely in an organized way? Because they also have to consider, you know, crews and burning out crews. Uh, so there's lots of considerations. But when you put it down to two things, uh, first and foremost, safety and secondly, an, uh, a structured and logical startup uh, when operations resume. And the big question we're facing now is when would operations resume? So, you know, it's, it, we're in day two now. Um, the two parties appear to still be negotiating uh, with the federal mediator, but um, we're definitely getting the signal from from the government of Canada at this point, anyways, from the Minister of Labor, that they they want to see a, a negotiated deal as opposed to some kind of uh, legislative return. Um, at least publicly, that's what we're seeing. Um, 
Have you gotten any sense, Milt, that, you know, sometimes in these situations, the railway will, will run limited capacity, um, you know, using management crews. Um, are you seeing anything like that? Well, we haven't heard anything publicly. I mean, that has been a, a tool, if you will, in the railway's toolbox uh, in the past. That was really a strategy that was employed by and emphasized by Hunter Harrison, uh, first when he was at CN and second when he went to CP. And part of his uh, overall uh corporate plan, if you will, was to have management employees with the rules certifications, in other words, that they would be able to operate trains on short notice because they would be certified to do so. Um, but since, you know, Hunter moved on from, from CP, uh, that's become less of a practice. And we haven't heard from CP that they're intending to do that this go around. So based on what they've said publicly, um, I don't think they're doing that, although you know, we can't know for sure. Uh, but for the most part, I would say that probably everything has come to a stop and it's probably gonna stay there uh, until um, you know, the labor disruption is over. Yeah, and as you say, they've, they've embargoed a lot of traffic too, right? And, and have they declared a force majeure event as well? They have. Uh, they put out a notice uh, in the last 24 or 36 hours, um, basically saying that the labor disruption constitutes a force majeure event. And really, that's about, uh, you know, enacting a mechanism to get them out from under uh, commercial uh, or contractual commitments every contract ever written for transportation, like many other things, has force majeure um, events defined in it, which releases either party from commitments they may have within those contracts. The more important part really from, a, from an infrastructure and a logistical perspective is the embargoing of the traffic because that's what's gonna guarantee that uh, no additional traffic comes on to CP's network um, or tries to come on to CP's network. You know, if they didn't embargo the traffic, U.S. railways, for instance, would keep moving traffic north, and what you'd end up with is uh, congested interchange locations, places like Chicago, which are critical uh, to the overall movement of rail across North America. So the embargo protects CP for sure, but it also signals to partner railways that they need to put the brakes on traffic working its way to CP, um, you know, for their own self-interest so that they don't end up congesting uh, uh, critical uh, rail infrastructure wherever it happens to be. Yeah, thanks, Milton. Uh, you know, a full shutdown is pretty, pretty significant. It probably doesn't need to be detailed too much more, but impact-wise, I mean, we're talking about, you know, just these cars need to be, need to stay places, you know, be somewhere. So presumably a lot of them are, you know, sitting at shippers facilities or, or things like that. I mean, what are, what are some of the major impacts that, that on the ground people, people experience when, when a work stoppage like this happens? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, when everything stops, everything stops. So, you know, any cars that were scheduled to um, come on to CP's lines at origins, whether those are grain cars or potash cars, I mean, take your pick, it doesn't matter. Um, they will all basically sit where they are, loaded or empty, um, until this thing gets resolved. Now, there might be a few exceptions, 
Um, there are some facilities, you know, oil refineries come to mind, some chemical plants where the actual facility is served uh, by both railways, ICN and CP, dual access as it's re referred to in the industry. So you might see uh, some of those shippers get a little bit of relief uh, at their facilities, but you know, for all intents and purposes, that will be minimal. Um, any cars that are that were on the road, uh, as we say, or en route um, to destination when the shutdown occurred, uh, they of course uh, will be where they are and there will be no ability to deliver them to any destinations that are served by CP, regardless of what railway they're moving on. Uh, you know, the, for grain, the most logical uh, example of that is Vancouver, where you have traffic originating on both railways, moving to Vancouver for termination on both railways. So you have CP traffic going to CN terminals and you have CN traffic going to CP terminals. So that's all going to get, uh, you know, mucked up, if you will. So, yeah, so, you know, uh, a full stop is a full stop. And, and the impact, I, I would say, is, you know, people need to understand that this is not CP in isolation because the rail networks in North America are seriously interconnected. So CN is going to see some impact. I mean, the only question really is how big is it going to be and exactly where are we going to see it? But if you think about the fact that, um, you know, traffic originates on CN and is either interchanged to CP for furtherance or terminates at CP serve facilities, you know, that's going to be problematic because CN is not going to have any place to take that traffic. So it's likely to sit at origin, even though it's at a CN origin, because there's no place for CN to take it. And just for context, you know, this year through the first 32 odd weeks, um, you know, about 22% of grain traffic that originates on CN actually terminates on CP. So that's about 20,000 cars. Um, cars that are at destination where it's served by CP, they'll be stranded there. Cars that are at destination facilities that are served by CN but need to return to CP will be stranded there because CN will have nowhere to give them back to CP. And as we talked earlier, you know, U.S. railways are not immune of this. There's a lot of traffic that moves cross-border. So there is a continual flow of empty cars, primarily, that are working their way back from the States, looking to come back into Canada to both CN and CP. And for those cars that want to come back to CP, they won't be able to because there's going to be no interchange capability, regardless of where it is. Um, so, you know, the impact is, is pretty broadly felt. And the longer this goes, the bigger that, that impact will become for all of those other railways. I mean, we, it's easy to see what's going to happen to CP. I think it's going to be more of an evolving picture for, you know, CP's partner railways that depend on their services, either at origin or at destination. Yeah, it's a great point about the, the broader impacts. I mean, we're already seeing these reports out of the U.S. with a lot of concerns raised by U.S. politicians around, around this, just because everything is just so incredibly flat, fragile right now within supply chains. And, and when you 
add in, at least in, in agriculture, but, but everywhere, the inflationary pressure worries about fertilizer, et cetera. You know, this is, this is a, a pretty important moment, serious moment. And, and I mean, we've been down two days. Um, it takes a while to come back from, from, from anything like this. Like what, um, like even if we come back at the end of the week, like it'll take a while for the network to recover from, from even a week's outage. Right. Oh, for sure. Um, uh, I mean, if, if the, uh, dispute was settled, uh, you know, at midnight tonight, realistically speaking, it's 24 to 48 hours before the first train would move on CP because they have to, call the crews back, the crews have to show up for work, you know, uh, and that just doesn't happen in minutes or 12 hours. So there's, we're, we're two days in, even if it got fixed today, we're probably going to be four days, three and a half days out before anything starts to move. And then, you know, you have to start from ground zero and start moving things. We have to, we used to have an old saying in the railway when I worked for CN, regardless of the kind of disruption, um, you know, if you're out for a day, you can count on three days to get back to where you were when you went out. So if you think about a disruption like this, which is severe because it's national in scope, if we're out for seven days on CP, it's not unrealistic to think that it's going to be a 30 to 45 day recovery period to return to quote unquote normal, whatever, you know, that is these days. Thanks, Milt. Um, clearly a topic we will be watching going forward and uh, appreciate your insight, Milt, today. And for those of you who would like to see the, the Ag Transport Coalition reports, you can go to www.agtransportcoalition.com. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks. Bye.